If you're familiar with the word chonga, you probably have pretty defined feelings about this we're hearing. And the curls like stuck to your side of your face. Did you have but the I think, the things like the the wisps in the front of your face? Yeah. 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 But here's yeah. the thing. That's author Janine Capocruset from Hialeah down here in the Miami area. <laughs> they, they owned it in a way that I was always like too self-aware. I was She's like, talking about mean? trying to be like the cool like sort of edgy trashy girls we called chongas thing. back in the day. I'm wearing my chonga costume, not I'm a chonga, <laughs> right? Like, I I'm Maria Muriel at WLRN in Miami. And for the next 20-something minutes, I'm talking with Janine about her writing, steeped in life in the Cuban stronghold that is Hialeah, and how she gets inspired now that she teaches at the University of Nebraska. We're going to get deep in the crevices of Janine's mind, into the memories that shape her craft and the places and experiences that inspire her. This is Spark, a podcast about imagination. It sounds like such a stark change to go from Miami and writing about Hialeah to live in Nebraska. And I wonder what it's like for your writing over there now. Oh, it's actually fantastic. The place I'm least productive writing-wise is um, is Miami, and it's always been that way. Why? Um, I don't. I think it's because I'm one of those people who thinks that all writing comes from a lack or comes from some sense of um, something lacking in in your idea of yourself or in your happiness or something. Um, so when I'm home, I don't feel compelled to write. I'm just hanging out. I'm go- I'll go to work. I, in the evenings, I'm with my family and never feel that sort of homesickness or drive uh, to produce anything. And weirdly, I wrote all of How to Leave Hialeah, my first book, yeah. when I was living in Minnesota and uh, Illinois, like the middle of nowhere, Illinois. And I wrote most of my second book in Tallahassee, Florida, and Los Angeles. Um, and so actually, it was kind of a strategic move to, to come to Nebraska in that this climate and this terrain has always been bizarrely productive for me. Um, so you knew so that working... and you, you did that on purpose. to Yeah, absolutely. To... Yeah, I did wow. move to Nebraska on purpose. It was not an accident <laughs> or, or um, anything like that. It was, it was intentional. Um, I still, I mean, I travel a lot and... I can go home to Miami whenever I like. There's, you know, there's an airport here. Um, it has like airplanes, like any other big city. You don't say. Uh, I just kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just kind of like the idea that Nebraska. I think I read somewhere it only has 1.8 million people in the whole state, um, and that most of those people are are near, are between Omaha and Lincoln, which are only about an hour apart from each other. So I just feel like it's great terrain for writing novels. It's just very open and and vast in a way that feels expansive and. Um, I just think I can see whole books on the terrain in a weird way that I, I, it feels the same way when I look at the ocean, honestly. Wow. Um, wow. So, and there's, I, when I first moved here, I went up to Burwell, Nebraska, which is sort of like cattle ranch country, um, about two and a half hours north of here and just like hung out on a cattle ranch for a few days. Cause I was like, well, I kind of want to know what it's like to be really like in Nebraska. But I went up to this cattle ranch and hung out there and it's very windy here. That's like a big um, quality to the climate here. Um, it was super windy and this this huge wind came through through these high grasses and I swear it sounded like ocean waves. And I was like, I'm going to be okay here. I'm going to remember that. It's just a different version of what I'm used to, but I can do it. I wonder why you need the open space or do you need the open space to 
think through words and sentences and then novels in your head? Um, I don't know. The, the open space aspect of it is new for me. Um, that's just sort of what I've discovered since having moved here that I like about it. Um, I think what I definitely need is to feel homesick or feel like the only place that I can find or construct home is in my imagination, um, which then gets me writing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So how do you start? Like when you started writing um, How to Leave Hialeah, what, what was the first thing you did in writing that story? Yeah. Okay. So the title story of that collection, um, I was living in Champaign, Illinois, and I was really sort of in a, a very new place in my life that I wasn't sure I, I had made all the right choices for myself. And I think I was thinking a lot about other lives or other versions of your life where had you made a different decision at some point, the trajectory would have been altered. Um, and so I thought well, at, at that point I had decided that I wasn't going to teach for at least a while. And I was just going to do part-time work. I worked at a daycare. I worked as a projectionist in a movie theater. I worked in a library. I did a bunch of odd jobs. I did a lot of like textbook editing. Um, so, but I was, in writing that story, I was thinking a lot about the how I had chosen not to sort of like take the adjunct route, right? Like teaching a million classes for mm -hmm. very little money and no health insurance. Um, and had tried to do what seemed to me a little more stable, but what seemed to a lot of people who were writers like a, a bad move, like to say that you weren't going to keep a hand in teaching in some way. Um, and so I remember the narrator of that story sort of like s like stays on and sort of t teaches and, and is teaching at a community college by the end. And so that was a very small part of it, but I was just sort of imagining like, what if I had gone this other this other route, um, or what if this character had taken a different route? A lot of times, my stories come from that, like a sense of if someone had tried, someone had done something different um, than the, the choice I made for myself. Like I kind of like play that out, like an alternate sometimes. reality. Yeah, and I think too, I never think if anybody's, I never think about anybody ever reading these things uh, when I'm first <laughs> writing them. So it's easy. If you write mostly when you're away from home, because homesickness is your inspiration. Mm. What about when you were still living in Miami? Did you ever write that way? Like, or even in a way that was private, but that could have turned into your writing now? Yeah, I, um, yes. I, when I was growing up, I sort of wrote um, compulsively. And it was something my parents tried very hard to make me stop doing because they saw, they were like, no, don't be a weird writer person. Um, they wanted, they were very, um, they wanted me to have a, a stable life, and to, I, I know they were very encouraging of, like, anything that I did in the sciences. Um, mm -hmm. So I remember doing one summer, I, like, did a summer camp at FIU that was all, it was called the Young Scientist Biomedical Research Program. At Florida International um, where University, I was, yeah. Yeah, at FIU, yeah. And I was doing, like, research on um, parasites in urban animals, like raccoons and pigeons. And it was fun stuff, but, like... I just, I would like write little stories, little weird stories, or if I had a crazy dream, I would wake up and try to write it down and then shape it into an actual narrative. So I think my stuff was very, um, probably more what we'd call now like experimental or image driven and kind of wild. And I didn't nurture that or follow through on that. Um, and then when I got to college, I started writing like sort of like pretty traditional stories. And I think my work is evolving in that sort of weird direction that it maybe would have started at had I been encouraged to write like from a young age. Had you been nourishing um, that bug? Yeah, and mostly it was, I remember very explicitly being told like writing is a hobby, it's not a life, it's not a career. By your family? Yeah, yeah, and I think they, I mean, I like I said, I think they were trying to do the, the best thing 
they also, you know, we weren't from a big, I'm not from a big family of big readers. Um, and I think they're right in a lot of ways. It's a big risk to, to right. follow a passion and see if that pans out. I mean, there's alternate versions of my life where I'm not teaching for a living and I don't get to talk, I don't get to write every day the same way or have a career that, it, that nourishes my writing now rather than like gets, takes time away from it. When you were still at home then, where did you write? Were you like in your room or like out and about? Yeah, I wrote in my room. Um, my sister and I shared a room till I was 15 and she was 14 or something like that, like 13 and 14 or 14 and 15. Um, and then when we got our own rooms, I had a journal. And I think what was interesting was I would try to keep this this journal or sort of like a diary, but immediately just start making stuff up in it, like stuff that never really happened. <laughs> like what? So I think Do you I remember had, like what kind of things you wrote? Like things that I would have wanted to say in a moment but didn't do it, like didn't have the, the mm. bravery to say it or something like that. Um, and so uh, sadly, I think a lot about boys too, which was really dumb. Um, but just <laughs> Not sort of necessarily. Like, I don't think I so. I don't know. Like, like boys that I was like too afraid to talk to and in, in my journal I would be like, I talked, I, I said this and then would write like a whole exchange that never happened where I come off sounding like really cool and aloof and sort of like, actually, I don't even care if you talk to me. Like, was it like playwright style or was it more of like a conversational novel style? I, th- it, I think it was more like um, like like a play. It was more it was not a lot of narrative or exposition sort of around it. Um, I would also like write what I thought were poems. They're not they weren't poems. They were just like messy, ugly things. <laughs> um, and I remember writing a lot about what I thought my life was going to be like and my future hmm. and thinking very much. I, I grew up like fairly religious, too. So thinking a lot about like what is the path I'm supposed to be on and trying that out. And again, sadly, always kind of connected to some some random boy that like didn't know my name or that I existed. Um, but uh, I don't know. It was it was just kind of weird that 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 was the impetus for some of these things. I think, too, there's, at least in my home, there was always a big push to find the right person to spend your life with and, like, get married. And my, my mom and dad were engaged when my mom was 15, and I was around by the time my mom was 19. So there was always this idea that, that like, you'd marry, like, what would probably be considered young right now. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that was it, too. There was a lot in these notebooks, a lot of, like, me with a different last name that was so really with all silly. Of this, this, so. is, this is like a really traditional experience, right? In a lot of Latin American immigrant households. Yes. And yeah, yeah. with a lot of this, like I can totally relate to this. Um, mm. But how did you figure out or like, how did you decide that writing was something that you could do professionally? Like that's a big leap to make, you know, from being told yeah. it's a hobby. Yeah, I don't think I mean, I think even right now, I'm not, I don't know that I'm doing it professionally <laughs> based on how I'm answering these questions. Um, I think, um, I think, so what happened was I got, when I got to college, I showed up as a biology major. Where was that? This is at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Mm-hmm. And I signed up for English classes. Like I wanted, I liked reading books. I, I, we weren't from a big reading household, but I took AP English my senior year and I started seeing all the books that were on the list that we were supposed to have read, and we didn't read any of them in my AP English class. I swear, we just read Hamlet, like, for a, a year. I don't even know. <laughs> Every question on that test, I used Hamlet as the example. I feel bad. I, I, eventually, I got a job as a standardized test scorer, and now I think back to my answers, and I was like, I must have bored the crap out of these people. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I got to college and took um, a class on the modern novel and an introduction to creative writing class. And what I realized was that 
I didn't even know it was a class. It didn't feel like work. It didn't feel like homework. It, uh, like, Did it feel I, like a hobby? No, it didn't feel like a hobby either. It felt like the only thing I wanted to do. Hmm. Like it didn't, I didn't care what my grade was. I, I just didn't think of it as work. It just seemed like, I mean, I would stay up really, really late working on the assignments for that class, the exercises and the, the story drafts that we were supposed to produce and the comments, like reading other people's work and giving them feedback to the point where I was like, oh, this is, you know, people always say that kind of stupid thing, but it's true. It's like, well, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life, right? Mm -hmm. That was the feeling. I was like, I know this is homework, but this is, if I just had all classes that were like this, I wouldn't feel like I'm in school. It just, I'm just really happy. And so I would not do my other homework. Like I remember being in a stats class and in like a human genetics class and just being like, oh, well, like trying to get through that work so that I could have the pleasure of my homework for the creative writing classes. And then I sort of, I mean, how do you, you know, you asked how I go to being that that could be something I do professionally. I I, I sort of just changed gears and I was like, okay, well, instead of a doctor, I'll be a lawyer. But what made you think and that you could do that? Like what, what was the moment where you decided this is, um, this is something I'm going to try knowing that it would be hard? Yeah. I, well, there was one moment when I was a sophomore. Um, I got into this special workshop. We had to apply to be in the workshop and it was with Richard Price. Um, who wrote Clockers, and he's, like, written some of the episodes of The Wire, and he's, like, big deal, right? Mm -hmm. And he had done his undergrad at Cornell as well and was back as a visiting professor just for one semester, and they would fly him in, like, Monday nights. He would teach Tuesday morning and then get on a plane and fly back to New York Tuesday evening. And I was like, that is so rad. Like, I thought that was, like, the most glamorous life. <sighs> and then he shows up in our class, and he's just, like, this, like, this, like, kind of old white dude who's, like, totally normal um, but has very strong opinions about creative writing. And he really, I mean... Honestly, it was his encouragement. He was he really liked my work. He really disliked a lot of people's work. And to be perfectly honest, he wasn't like he probably wasn't a great professor because he would tell people you should not be writing. You have nothing to say. Hmm. And now as a professor, I I don't think I'd ever say that to a student because they might not have something to say yet, but it's my job to help them find what it is inside them that is worth listening to. But yeah, anyways, Richard Price told me, like, I wrote this story and he was sort of like, you really have something to say and here are the things I see you, where you're holding yourself back. And he was just on point, like everything he said, he was right. Um, so he sort of just like needled his way into my doubt um, and, and made me ignore it for long enough. And then he was the one who told me about MFA programs, which I didn't know existed. Mm. Um, so to get a master's of fine arts and creative writing. And I said, well, but I'm going to go to law school. And he said, oh, you're doing the same thing I was I was going to do. Like he had done pre-law at Cornell and was was applied to law schools and MFA programs because he was, I think he's a first generation college student and wanted to feel like he did something legitimate with his college degree. Right. So he applied to law schools and MFA programs and then got into a really good MFA program and went there and just sort of told his family, oh, I'm doing this first. And I pretty much like moment for moment followed that plan. I applied to law schools and MFA programs. I told my parents that I was going to go to the thing that gave me the most funding, knowing full well that was going to be an MFA program and not a law school. And how was how were those um, conversations? Like, how did you bring that up to them? Um, I think because I was the first in my family to go to college, I I had more information than they did about things. So those com those conversations were not. I was like away at school when I was applying for all those things. So it was more of like I told them what I what I thought they needed to know, but. I think the way that conversation went down was sort of like, oh, I got into this one school and I have to teach a couple classes, like basically explaining a TA ship. I was like, I'm going to be a teacher 
at that school for three years. Mm -hmm. And then when that's done, I might go to law school after. But law school, I'm going to come out with a billion dollars in loan or I can go to the school where I make money. So I phrase those conversations in terms of like job opportunity almost. And it was more like, okay, this thing coming right after is immediately work. And this other thing is more loans and more debt. So of course you take the work. So they were Um, more supportive of that frame that way. Yeah, especially because I said, you know, my LSAT score is good for five years. This MFA program is three years. If I come out of there, like, and I remember saying, like, let me get this out of my system. And then I'll go to law school after that. I'll still have two years of eligibility on the score. I won't have to retake these tests. Hmm. And they're like, that's a good plan. And I do think that was sort of my plan. I was, I, I, not that I doubted that I, you know, I remember my mom being like, look at John Grisham, you know, <laughs> like wow. that was her example. Um, and I was like, yeah, let's not look at him. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but thinking at the same time, like, well, yeah, that, that could be something. I know a lot of writers who were lawyers and then stopped and, and became, you know, and then followed their their passion or their true calling. So I think it's a totally reasonable and respectable way to go about things. I just sort of knew what I needed to write and did it. I was like, I don't want to be 50 years old and be like, okay, now I'm going to do what I've been wanting to do for 25 years. I was like, what if I just do it now and see what happens? How do you know still what you need to write? Like, how do you identify this is a thing that I want to write about? Um, if it becomes sort of um, like an obsessive or compulsive thought, which makes me sound unstable. No, no, no. But um, like describe it. How so? Is it obsessive or um, compulsive? Um, I, in moments where I would want to rest or not, you know, just be thinking about something else or I have work I need to do, it intrudes mm. as something, as a, usually as in terms of voice or character, a sort of something demanding to be explored on the page. Um and I'm usually trying to, like, keep it at bay because I have too much to do. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't have time for that just yet. Um, so you have to sort of fight so, it, yeah. but it keeps bugging you. I, I sort of have to fight it, except that in the job I have now, I'm encouraged not to fight it. Yeah. When you're and a how is that like, different? Um, it's amazing. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful – you know, I know there's a lot – I mean, I, if writing full-time would obviously be, like, the most awesome thing. But I almost feel like that there wouldn't be any structure to my days in a way that would probably lead to me not bathing regularly or eating well. <laughs> um, I'd forget to go buy the kale to drink the smoothie, right? Yeah, um, yeah. No so, vegetables. Um, yeah, it feels really awesome. It also um, – what it, what I realized that it, it is – it hasn't resulted in me writing more quality work, interestingly. It just lets me get a lot of the garbage out. And so I do a lot of free writing or writing that end, that sort of dead ends and doesn't become anything. Hmm. And so I think I get to the the quality work faster that way because I think that stuff has to come out anyways. And if my time were more – if my writing wasn't being rewarded via the job I have, right? Like, you know, when you're a professor, it's like your research and creative activity. That's like me writing a short story, mm-hmm. which is something I do anyways no matter what job I have. So it's cool to have a job that's like, yes, please make as many short stories as you can and we will be happy with you. Um, that's really cool. Um, Do you think being a professor is a thing that stimulates your imagination? Yes. And I, I talk to my um, my graduate students about this, that if teaching uses the same energy as the energy you need to write, then it's, it's maybe not the best career path for you. But for me, my teaching um, sort of nourishes that energy. And I think it's because in a lot of ways, I think of myself as very loyal to the subject matter, not necessarily to the to the pedagogy or the students in the class, if that makes sense. Like, I'm like, 
I go in there and I'm so excited to teach like an Edward P. Jones story or an Elena Miramontes story. And my goal when I go into that classroom is like they have to understand why this story is so awesome. And so I have a lot of enthusiasm for it, but it also means that my prep for class is like looking very closely at a story I admire and figuring out how the writer did what they did. And then sort of like sh like bringing them into that and saying, look what this writer did. Isn't this awesome? This is so awesome. And they kind of look at me and they're like, is she crazy? Or is she just really excited? Like what what is happening? And so they come along. Um, and then when they are when they get it and they see it, I feel like a million bucks. I just am like, oh, my God, I just made this person understand why they love this, like to see why it's so good. And I leave class totally energized. Like I know some people leave class and sometimes I leave tired and, you know, if you, people have bad classes or you have a class where like the students don't um, respond to the story the way you're, you're hoping or you'll talk, you know, sometimes I'll talk for like five minutes about something and then get a question that's clearly like, like very much just about comprehension. And I'll be like, oh, I've been talking about like paragraph breaks and you are we're not there right like you were not there for that I was like look at all the work this paragraph break is doing and they'll be like um wait so why is the title this how do you get that rewarding feeling that you know that they understand why a story is so awesome um well I in some of my classes I have them write what I call remixes where they take a piece of them of their own work and they have that I have them parody the style of the writer and we'll read those in class and so I'll hear immediately if they could figure out how that writer put their sentences together and then convert it into their own work so that's sort of an immediate gratification where I'm like oh my god you totally got how Virginia Woolf uses semicolons like that's awesome hmm. um I also think it's so writerly to be like oh my god semicolons awesome like, that's the, <laughs> I just said that and like 16 year old me just heard that I was like who's this this lame lady on this podcast talking about punctuation. Oh my so god, dumb. let's like, talk about this. On your on your Twitter bio, you identify as a reform chonga, and I relate yeah. to that so hard, so hard yeah. because I did the thing in middle school. But we're a few years apart, mm. so I wonder, like, how your chonga experience was different than mine. Like, what was I think, what is yeah, a chonga? I, a chonga is like I would just remember mostly just sharpie lip liner, like taking a sharpie marker and outlining my lips with that, or using like. I, I don't know I ever went full Sharpie. I think I definitely used <laughs> eyeliner. I definitely used black and brown eyeliner as lip liner. Okay. Um, and did you fill I it never... in or was it just the lip no, liner? No, I would just do the lip liner and then gloss. Um, right. And I remember thinking as I – I remember being in middle school and doing that. Wait, I, now I'm curious how old you are. I am um, – I'm 26. I forgot. Okay, yeah. I got, yeah. A, I got a little bit on you. I'm 34. Um, a, little, a different generation of Chunga, yeah. Different, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. It was, kind of, but I don't know. We we had those same like little slippers that were mesh with the glitter. Oh yes, um, yes. And the so, sequins, so those the sequins. A long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, I, the they stuck around. I mean, the actual product of, of the shoe was garbage. But um, you know I think what's they funny though, my with, like, my mom never let me buy them. <laughs> really? <laughs> They're so, not really shoes. No, <laughs> I would envy those. <laughs> I had those. I had those. I wore them to school. Um, also, like, just a lot of hair gel, very crispy hair, mm -hmm. and the curls, like, stuck to your side of your face. Did you have but the, I think, the things, like, the, the wisps in the front of your face? Yeah. 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 But here's yeah. the thing. I remember doing that and then always seeing girls who were just doing it better. They just had it. They, <laughs> they owned it in a way that I was always, like, too self-aware. I was like, what I do am you mean? wearing my... Like, how were they, do I felt how like they better? I would do that, and I would look at myself and think, I'm wearing my chonga costume, not I'm a chonga. <laughs> right? Like, I couldn't... Was that an like attitude I, thing? I think so. I think it was like I'm putting this on to try to make myself feel cooler, but I know deep down I'm not this girl. Why were they that girl? Like, what did they do that made you feel like, oh, I, this is just a costume that I'm wearing? 
I think like they smoked weed. Um, <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> or they knew people who smoked weed um, like more intimately. They had like older boyfriends with cars, and the in cars middle were all school. tricked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this girl in middle school. She was fourteen. She was dating this twenty-four-year-old guy, and we were like, "Yeah, you're cool." Like, and he would drive us to lunch, right? Because she, was yeah, 14. and everybody was totally fine with that. Like, yeah. I didn't. I and was her like, mom, except too. my mom. <laughs> Maybe that was the difference. My mom was like, "That's messed up," and her mother shouldn't allow that. Right. And I remember being like, "This is why I can't fully inhabit the chonga persona, mom." I mean, I never articulated it that way, but I remember trying to like stand up, stand up to it, and be like, "No, he's cool," and he takes us to McDonald's, and you know, he's not. <laughs> You know, they're, they're whatever. They've been together a year. Like he's serious, and and but then part of my mind being like, no, my mom is totally right. Like, what does a twenty-four-year-old man want with a fourteen-year-old girl? Like that's kind of weird. Right. So I always had this sort of sense of, I, I don't know if it's self-awareness or like being able to perceive myself outside of myself and my peer group, um, that I think is actually a quality that led to me becoming a writer. Like being able to observe the world that way is is definitely something a writer does. Um, like a little bit so of yeah, an insider girl was, outsider. Yes, absolutely. From that time. And I think part of that was just like, um, you know, in some ways, my friends sort of protected me from from that. I also had an amazing best friend growing up. Um, and the two of us were the, like both. I think, too, we had parents that just did not let us go hard into that culture. Go full time. Um, yeah. Like we had chaperones when we went okay. out. Like we had to take a sibling with us or we had to go together. And so, you know, and everybody else. I remember this one girl who she was just allowed to stay out. Like she didn't like have a curfew. Like middle school and, and and high school, she just, like, went out. In fact, now that I think about it, I think her name was Lizette, which is funny because that's the name of the narrator. But <laughs> it's not spelled that way. Yeah, but she was just cool. I mean, she was cool. And I remember, too, like, she seemed like she was sexually active in ways that we were just terrified and we had, like, not even kissed boys. So I felt like that was the way, like, we had the – we could do the look to some extent, but we just couldn't – the behaviors were – felt beyond us still like Mm -hmm. we just felt really young still compared to those girls and I remember thinking those girls were older than me and not realizing they were the exact same age right yeah I totally Um, remember that but a little um, bit of it always stays with you I think oh yeah having grown up that experience kind of shapes you and it like gives you this Miami girl identity right Mm -hmm, for sure yeah so because because this is a podcast about imagination I'm going to ask you to imagine if Hmm. you were not a Miami girl I can't I don't even know that I can do it. Honestly, it's so weird. Um like what do you mean? I I was born somewhere else? Like Yeah, what like what would that be like? What would your life be like then? That's impossible to answer. I and I think I think the reason it's impossible is because I feel very much shaped by the place I'm from. Mm-hmm. And I I mean, am I still Cuban American? Like are my parents still from Cuba if I'm not from Miami? Um, Do you feel like you need it? It sounds like maybe you feel like you need that, at least, if you're not from Miami. Well, I mean, that's my I mean, that's my in- entire ethnic heritage. So that's yeah. try- like I wouldn't be able to imagine myself. I think I've I don't know. I, th- I think I grew up very secure in my sense of myself as a, as a Cuban or Cuban-American person for the fact that I grew up in Miami. Like you're you're submerged in the culture in a lot of ways there, or at least the culture of Miami, not necessarily that of of Cuba in any way, but a version of Cuba that exists in nostalgia and in, in, in yes. memory of the people around you. And that absolutely informed the way I tell stories. Yeah. Um, I think if I hadn't grown up in Miami, I wouldn't be a writer. Hmm. Um, although maybe not, because if my whole family's with me and we live in Nebraska, let's say, I have a sense that maybe 
the the urge to tell stories to keep a sense of like the homeland alive in our imaginations would have maybe been more urgent. So maybe I would have been a storyteller just the same. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning. The thing you said about the ocean, that's really interesting. Like, do you get inspiration from seeing the ocean? How does that work? What does it make you feel? I just think I like I don't know that it's like, oh, I see the ocean and I feel things. I think it's a, a <laughs> it's a reminder of having a sense of scale and how absolutely unimportant each of us is to the overall scheme of the planet. Mm. Um, and it's a very humbling feeling that then, for some reason, allows me to make things. Um, again, sort of thinking like, I'm just going to do this for me because – or the sense of like, how do, how do you figure out a way to like outlast yourself? Um, and the answer for me has been to make literature that will hopefully last outlast me and that people will still read these books long after I'm gone. And I think the vast spaces sort of remind me that that's possible, but also at the same time realize that nobody is waiting for me to make the next thing. I have to want to do it myself, for myself in that way. This has been a talk with Miami author Janine Kapokrusit, who now lives in Lincoln, Nebraska. Spark is a podcast about imagination produced out of WLRN in Miami, Florida. To hear more, search WLRN Spark in your podcast app. This episode has been engineered by Jason Sapka. Spark is a creation of Tom Hudson, Alicia Zuckerman, and myself, Maria Muriel. Oh,